All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you today, including at the bottom of this hour, the latest on BC's vaccine plan. It was a big day yesterday on this file as the government announced a new priority list for frontline workers to get priority access to the vaccine. The list includes teachers and police officers. I got Ralph Kaiser on the show today he's the president of the vancouver police officers union he's a happy man today many other professionals though not happy they were left off the list including bus drivers ferry workers judges lawyers and other courtroom officials so we got the latest on that for you that's coming up at the bottom of this hour also coming up a little later on the show albert samaha tells the story of his mother's obsession with QAnon. Yeah, the QAnon conspiracy theory, how his mom went full QAnon, his efforts to change her life and bring her back. It's absolutely incredible story. You don't want to miss it. He's on at 11 o'clock. So all that and more on the show today. But we start with the trials in China of the two Michaels, the two Canadians detained there. Uh, one, Michael Spavor in court today. We're told it was a two-hour trial that ended without a verdict on conspiracy or espionage charges in China today. Michael Kovrig's trial set to begin on Monday. Now, no one was allowed into the courtroom, no members of the public, no members of the media, no consular officials. In this secret trial that took place in China today. Have a listen to this now. This is uh, Jim Nickel. He's a senior official with the Canadian Embassy in China. And he was asked this morning, are you confident that any justice was done today? Here's what he said. Uh, we have no idea. We were not present in the courtroom, so we have no idea what transpired in the courtroom. Canada has no idea what happened in that courtroom today. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, senior fellow at the Institute for Science society and policy at the university of ottawa the canada china forum advisory board i'm very pleased to welcome her thanks a lot for coming on good to be with you okay the very disturbing situation here for canadians who are, are concerned and worried about about the two michaels did this go according to the what you anticipated would happen today that we'd have a, a two-hour proceeding uh with with no officials allowed into the court well, um, I, I was expecting it would be over in one day, but two hours is quite uh, stark um, and really is evidence that there was no evidence. Um, they, you know, if, if you had a lot of evidence uh, to convict these people, it would have take time, taken time to go through, through them. And uh, the fact that there wasn't anybody in the in the courtroom means that there was no witness to the fact that there is no evidence. So it's it's a shoddy um, legal process in China, and we're seeing uh, basically the worst of it. Right. We saw this extraordinary scene today where we had Canadian diplomatic officials joined by other uh, diplomatic staff from other countries who showed up outside this courtroom today. So we had officials from the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Australia, all these diplomats showing up and trying to gain access to this courtroom. And of course, they were they were kept outside. What do you make of that? Is this a, like a like a show of Canada's allies showing sympathy with Canada today? 
It really is. And, yeah. you know, uh, Secretary of State Blinken um, made a statement that uh, the U.S. stands shoulder to shoulder with Canada against arbitrary detentions, such as uh, what has happened to the Michaels. And quite literally, that's what we were seeing. Um, U.S., uh, U.K., there was eight eight other countries besides Canada there, standing shoulder to shoulder with our diplomats. It was really a a moving scene. And um, even better, they they were waving at all the cars and vans that were going into the facility, not knowing which one Michael Spavor was in. But his lawyer told them after the trial that he had seen them. And so that's a, a real show of support for him and and really he's he's grasping at straws I'm sure because he hasn't had a consular visit this past month as is his right under the Vienna Convention and under the Canada China consular agreement um, that should have been given he should have been able to see consular officials before the trial he didn't and of course they weren't there during the trial so we don't know what happened inside the room, uh, but uh, but at least he knew that there were a lot of people supporting him outside the building. Right. How significant? And I, I, might, I must say, yeah. this is probably related to the arbitrary detention initiative that Canada led a couple of weeks ago, where we got 58 countries um, plus the EU to sign a declaration against arbitrary detentions like this. And so all of those countries, it's now 60 actually, two more have just signed on, the Philippines and the Bahamas. And, uh, and so, you know, this is a real show of force. Um, uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the things that's coming out of it is that many right. countries together showing that this is not normal international behavior for right. China. Right. Of course, this is a, a, a diplomatic drama that's playing out with three countries. We've got Canada, China, of course, also the United States. The arrest of the two Michaels widely seen as retaliation for Canada's arrest of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou on an extradition warrant uh, requested by by the United States. So we got three countries involved here. What do you think about, like, how significant do you think is the Biden administration position here where Joe Biden said a few weeks ago that human beings are not bargaining chips and we're going to work with Canada for it to secure the release of the two Michaels. How significant is that, that the Biden administration making that clear? It's really huge because we know that the U.S. has leverage. Canada is a middle power. And in fact, China has has instructed our officials that uh, Canada is a small power and has to stop leaning towards the U.S. But we, in fact, are a middle power. But having said that, the U.S. is a superpower and has a lot more leverage, uh, certainly with China, than we do. And so if they speak up on our behalf, which I believe they will at the Anchorage meeting, then I think there may be some possibility of progress, especially if China is serious in saying that they want a reset of the relationship. Um, This is a good way to, uh, this would be a good way to uh, demonstrate that by, um, you know, now that the trials are getting out of the way, have a verdict and deport uh, our people uh, and do that in quick order to demonstrate that China is serious about having a reset of the relationship. 
Right. Speaking of that summit meeting between the United States and China taking place in Alaska, that got off to a kind of a rocky start here. Let me play uh, Anthony Blinken here for you, the U.S. Secretary of State at this meeting in Alaska. And here he is facing off with uh, China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi. Here's how that went. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. Uh, Well, you can't blame this problem on somebody else. Okay, that was the start of the the meeting in in Alaska. What do you read into that uh, situation, given that the staging of these trials was was seen by some as maybe deliberate timing by China to exert some pressure on the Americans in, the, in advance of this meeting in Alaska, maybe use the two Michaels as bargaining chips. When we see the meeting get off to a rocky start here between the Chinese and the Americans, what's your analysis of that? Well, I think it, we're seeing that the U.S. is standing up to China and isn't going to take um, any kind of win-win rhetoric that China likes to use. Uh, to gloss over problems. It's going to go head-on uh, with problems. Um, Blinken raised qu- quite a number of them there. He didn't mention Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, I believe, because those are consular cases and would therefore be dealt with privately. Uh, but uh, I'm, I have every confidence that he's going to be raising them. And I think we're, we're in for a new era of relations with China where large groups of countries will be standing up. Uh, We've heard of the D10, which is the G7 democracies plus Australia, South Korea, and India as a new organization of of nations to stand up to China, um, including uh, collaborating on technology to compete with Chinese technology. Okay, we're following extremely closely today. Thanks for coming on with your analysis today. Good to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about the two Michaels on trial in China, Michael Spavor faced his so-called trial in China today on espionage charges. It lasted two hours. No verdict. Trial was held in secret. No one else, no officials allowed in the courtroom. Michael Kovrig goes on trial on Monday as this hostage diplomacy continues. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau weighing in this morning. Here's Trudeau speaking a short time ago. I want to thank our many, many international partners, friends, and allies for their solidarity and support. Going forward, we will continue to be in close contact with the families during this difficult time. To their loved ones, know that today and every day, Canadians are with you and thinking of both Michaels. Okay, let's uh, get the take from the official opposition now. Michael Chong is a conservative MP. He's the official opposition critic in the House of Commons for Foreign Affairs. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Uh, Michael, thanks for coming on. Great to be here, Mike. What did you think about Trudeau's comments there? I mean, do you think Canada is being tough enough? Is Trudeau being tough enough on China here? Are we letting China push us around here? Well, we share his concerns about the unlawful detention and now the trial of Mr. Koberg and Mr. Saver. Uh, It's a violation of international law, and we are very concerned about this most recent development. 
Uh, but that said, for many years, the Trudeau Liberals have been naive about the threats posed by China. Um, recently, they've turned around on that issue. They acknowledge that China is threatening Canada, threatening our c- citizens, for example, Mr. Coburg and Mr. Spavor, but they have no plan to counter those threats. And so we're calling on the government to come forward with a plan to counter these threats that China is posing so that we can better secure the release of Mr. Kovic and Mr. Staver. What precisely do you think Canada should be doing? Well, I think we should be working more closely with allies, particularly the United States, in getting them to help Canada secure their release. I think we need to be working with allies in imposing sanctions on Chinese officials responsible for these gross human rights violations. I think we need to be looking at uh, banning the imports of certain imports coming from China that are produced from forced labor. Uh, I think there's a range of measures that we should be looking at that the government has been hesitant uh, to put in place. Do you think Canada in some ways is sort of stuck in the middle on this and is in a bigger fight between China and the United States? I mean, the arrest of these two Canadians widely perceived around the world as retaliation for the detention of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou on, a, on an American uh, extradition warrant in Vancouver. China, Canada just seems to be kind of stuck. These two guys are stuck in the middle here. You know, yeah. is, does that make Canada any less powerless in, in any way in your thought, in your mind? Clearly, there's a great power rivalry going on between the United States and China. Um, in that rivalry, there's no question which side Canada takes. That's with our closest ally and trading partner. Australia is also caught in between this great power rivalry. Um, but unlike Canada, Australia has taken a strong position in defense of itself. And as a result, uh, I think they're much more effective in their policy toward China than is Canada. And I might add that Australia is much more exposed in trade to China than is Canada. We don't do very much trade with China relative to the United States and relative to Australia. So Australia has taken a much bolder stand in defense of themselves, and I think that's a much more effective stand. Right. It was amazing to see diplomatic staff from so many of Canada's allies rallying together in China today outside the courtroom, trying to get access to the courts. We saw diplomatic staff from the United Kingdom, Germany, France. Australia was represented there today, too. What exactly has Australia done that's different and more effective than what Canada has done, do you think? Well, first of all, they've taken a clear stand on a range of issues. The Australian government has made it clear to China that it will not uh, tolerate some of the threats that China has been directing its way. Australia is also working much, much more closely with the United States to defend itself. For example, Australia has joined the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is made up of the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. It's an effort to counter China's threats in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Australia has also taken other measures, such as setting up a a legislative framework and an office to counter China's negative foreign intimidation and foreign influence operations on Australian soil. So those are just some of the measures that the Australian government has taken in recent months, in recent years, in order to counter these threats. We believe that Canada should take a look at what Australia is doing and implement some of the things that they're doing in order to defend ourselves and better help our allies help us counter these threats. Okay, Michael Chong, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. 
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about BC's vaccine rollout plan. A big day yesterday on this file as the government announces new categories of frontline workers who will receive priority access to the COVID-19 vaccine. BC teachers, police officers, grocery store workers, other frontline workers breathing a little easier today after getting the news yesterday that they will get the COVID shot. Here is Premier John Horgan yesterday talking how this is going to be rolled out. People who are working that cannot work remotely, people who are in outbreaks already, people who cannot work with full PPE or barriers in place, or people who live in congregate settings will be able to be included to this list. Okay. All right. Police officers on that list. Let's discuss now with Ralph Kaisers. He's the president of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ralph, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me this morning. Okay, Ralph, what was it like to get this news that uh, police officers would get the COVID shot? Uh, You know what? It it was a moment of uh, happiness. And I say this because, again, now we're in a position where we see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, This last year obviously has been very tough for our frontline members that have been working in and among high-risk, you know, clients, uh, patients, uh, people that they're dealing with. And uh, so it's good to know that uh, government has seen that uh, the work that we do is considered important, uh, that we are at risk, and that we now will be uh, in line to uh, get this vaccine. How How did you get the news? How was that relayed to you? Uh, I was actually watching it on the news. Oh, okay. That's how you found out. Okay. <laughs> yes. I had, I had the TV on in my office as I was doing some other work, and obviously once the uh, media uh, government made the announcement, I, uh, I was very uh, attentive to the news and was paying attention to what was being announced. Yeah, I bet. Were you surprised at all? I know you got, you've been advocating for a while to get uh, co- the COVID shot for frontline police officers. Did it surprise you that it came through yesterday in any way? Um. You know, I was I was optimistic. However, you know, I, I, I didn't want to put all my eggs into one basket. I know we have been advocating for this for uh, quite some time, along with our uh, brothers and sisters in fire. Um, so it, it was it was good news. It was very well received. And I know, know our members are quite, uh, quite happy that this is now going to be yeah. rolled out in the near future. Can you talk a little bit about what police officers face on a daily basis when it comes to the the threat of the virus and their interactions with the public? Like how many times, like do officers face this just basically on a constant, constant basis during the course of their job? Well, again, it depends. I mean, our, our, our policing has many different facets and obviously there are different sections that are uh, certainly more at risk. I know uh, from the very beginning, I certainly was advocating first and foremost uh, that two categories of our uh, members should be vaccinated. And that was our operations members, our m- members that are out on the road dealing with the public, dealing with the, these uh, high-risk, uh, uh, vulnerable communities, uh, and our jail staff. Uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, I know we know by way of the evidence and contact tracing that a lot of the people that we, I shouldn't say a lot, I believe the number's around 50 if I have it right, uh, of prisoners, people that we'd been arrested, had been remanded, and were then being sent to correctional facilities, were being tested when they uh, entered into those facilities and came back positive. So with the contact tracing that came back, obviously there was always a concern about anyone and everyone who had dealt with that person leading up to them being remanded and sent off to a correctional facility, uh, that they, A, potentially have been exposed, and then also more importantly, and I, and I say this because generally, 
Uh, our frontline members are younger, healthier people, and uh, right. the concern is that they would, A, pick up the virus, potentially uh, spread it or pass it on to other members of the public that they're dealing with that day, or taking it home to their family, their elderly parents, uh, you know, other family members that have compromised immune systems. Right. Speaking of Ralph Kaiser, he's the president of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. Have many Vancouver police officers actually got COVID? Uh, we have, and I, again, the number changes from week to week. Uh, if I remember correctly, we're up around 40-ish wow. uh, members that have actually tested positive. Now, outside of that, and then going back in time at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a number of members that were symptomatic and were not tested. So, I suspect that that number was actually higher uh, as far as members that actually did have COVID. Okay, and do officers take precautions when they're dealing with the public? Like, are they masked up? Are they trying to are they trying to maintain distance if they can? Uh, yes, of course. So, and again, uh, you know, if you've noticed, our members are wearing masks. They do have PPE. We do have pl- uh, plenty of masks and uh, protective uh, equipment for our members to wear. Uh, different levels of protection for different types of calls and scenarios that they may be going to. But there still always is that uncertainty. And then a lot of times we're literally hands-on with people. Uh, our members have gotten into struggles and fights trying to arrest people. Their masks have come off. Uh, so there, there's always that risk of still being exposed and the PPE is potentially not working. Yeah, we saw a story last week, Ralph, about how apparently there was some confusion about the vaccine rollout and a lot of police officers were actually calling the appointment line to get an appointment to receive to receive the shot last week. How did that happen? How did that confusion start? Well, it started, and again, it started with a member outside of the VPD. It was another municipal department member, I believe, that works in an integrated unit. Uh, that had actually phoned one of the health regions and simply was asking some questions around the vaccine, the rollout, how it was going to work, etc. And the uh, call taker said, well, why don't you book an appointment? We'll give you the shot. So no sooner than they heard that, well, (laughs) as you can imagine in the law enforcement community, uh, that news and that advice from that call taker spread like complete wildfire in the policing community in the lower mainland. So, yeah, there were quite a number of members that phoned and booked appointments. Okay, well, now it's official. You can you can get the shot. What has been the reaction to the police officers you've been speaking to in the last 24 hours? Well, they're happy uh, that we're, A, going to be getting the shot. And, you know, by all accounts, you know, and, and I'm glad to see that a lot of other essential services were also included. I know the teachers, they've been in a tough position uh, continuing to teach. Uh, children and the potential for exposure to them, uh, bylaw officers, and the list goes on. And there's there's still people on this list, uh, you know, obviously that hopefully we do get more vaccine and the, the priority can get bumped up for them. Our members are happy they're getting the vaccine now. Ralph Kaiser, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, no problem. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Officials in British Columbia and across the border in Washington State say it is on. They have upped their games. They are determined to eradicate murder hornets this year. The Asian giant hornet. The queens could start emerging from the ground as spring draws closer and as we the weather warms up. These invasive hornets were first spotted in 2019 
We've got cross-border determination now to eradicate these invasive insects. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Paul Van Westendorp, Provincial Apiculturalist with British Columbia. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Mike. Mike, what, what an entree. I mean, what an announcement. Uh, this is like everybody <laughs> must be at, their, at the edge of their seat by now. Well, they should be. I mean, we're talking murder hornets here. Um, no, no. <laughs> apicu- what is an apiculturalist? Can you explain that? Oh, uh, okay. Api- 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 sorry. Apiculture. It deals with honeybees. That's ah, what gotcha. Named after, right? Gotcha. Okay, because this is the problem with these uh, the, the giant Asian hornets. They can they wipe out honeybees, right? Well, yes, I, I, I really encourage you to, 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 to get it down to a more realistic level. We are not having uh, hordes of those huge hornets flying around trying to find its victims. Uh, there is a certain time in the year, in the late summer and in the fall, when they can start to prey on honeybees. And yeah. neglected honeybee colonies that are not fully protected will suffer but beekeepers will be able to do a lot of things to make it very difficult for those hornets to succeed. Okay, well, that's good to hear. What are, can you talk a little bit about the efforts to try and control control these hornets? What are we doing well, basic, here? Yeah, so basically, uh, we're dealing with an apex predator. In other words, uh, he, these hornets are the largest hornets in the world. Uh, they're about five centimeters in length uh, with a wingspan of about seven centimeters and they uh, are eating other insects. That is their purpose in life. Uh, So uh, they have been introduced. Uh, We do not know how, but they were brought in at some point, probably through uh, uh, shipments from from Asia. And there are, because they are apex predators, there will never be many of them around. And that is what makes it so difficult for us to search for them and to find these nests. So we are putting out a whole pile of traps, uh, bottle traps, along the border and in areas in the Fraser Valley where we hope to catch them. And we rely heavily upon the public's participation to report any of those hornets uh, that they will see sometime in the late spring and summer season. And report those so that we can then go after it, uh, plot it on a map, get a cluster of sightings in a certain area and then go in with a crew to search for the for the nest and destroy that nest. Okay, oh, that sounds like a pretty a pretty good plan. Now these traps that are set out, you talked about you're hoping that citizens can also get on board and help out here. So citizen scientists can is it possible for someone to make a homemade trap to try and trap one of these these uh, giant yeah. Asian hornets? Dead easy, and I, uh, I'm busy to post something uh, or get uh, that posted on the government website. So you have the simple design made of a converted uh, two-liter pop bottle, and uh, that can be hung in a nice little location in the tree, in the tree somewhere or wherever. And all what people do is put a little bit of orange juice at the bottom and some sugar or some, uh, what is it, uh, uh, some cooking uh, wine, uh, some white, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, rice, rice wine. Uh, I heard is wine. it good? Yeah. Rice wine, right? Just to create a sense of fermentation uh, of fruit, and that will hopefully attract these hornets to uh, to go into the trap. And then when they find this giant hornet in it, to report that. Okay, talking to Paul Van Westendorp about murder hornets, uh, also known as the Asian giant hornet. Have you ever seen one of these things, Paul? 
Oh, I have been handling them. Yes. Okay. They are very, they are from an entomological perspective, they're quite striking insects. They're quite beautiful. Uh, uh, they are, of course, uh, equipped with uh, very large heads um, and uh, as well as a stinger at the other end. Uh, and those heads are, are accommodate huge mandibles uh, that are designed, mouth parts, that are designed to chew on other insects. That's, uh, they are very beautiful insects, actually. So. Can they actually? Can they also chew on a human? Well, if you would allow somebody to, uh, to yes, I mean, of course, they could bite. Uh, but generally, I like to point out, though, that unless you disturb their nest, they will avoid uh, the uh, persons. I mean, we, they yeah. are not interested in us. Uh, we think we are in, infinitely interesting, but quite frankly, in the eyes of uh, most insects and the Asian giant hornet also, uh, we are totally uninteresting to them. Uh, they are after other things. Uh, it's just that the problem is that they built nests in the ground. And yeah. over in evolutionary terms, they, they have learned that they are much more exposed to large animals or disturbance. And therefore, they have a very strong defense uh, impulse when right. their nest is disturbed. And that right. is making it a bit dangerous. It's interesting to hear you describe them as beautiful. I think that's the first time I've heard one of these insects des described in that fashion. I think most people are, are think these things are terrifying. Like, have you ever been uh, you ever been stung by one of these things? Uh, no, not yet. But you know, <laughs> beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as we know. Yeah. And uh, we may taste. Uh, we have maybe differences in taste, but they are quite <laughs> formidable insects that he have evolved to fit into their environments very, very well. We just don't think that they are suitable for our environment. They are unwelcome guests, and that is why we will do our very best to make it very difficult for them uh, right. to establish themselves here. Yeah, and it's amazing the uh, the resources that are going in to try and control this and trying to er eradicate this invasive insect here because, as you mentioned, that they have large mandibles, so they got these, these uh, large jaws. And I was reading yesterday about how scientists in washington state at one point had used dental floss to tan tie some very tiny transmitters onto one of these hornets which i find ext extraordinary and some of the scientists actually watched some of these hornets just chew they just chew through this dental floss no problem yeah yeah so they have to now use uh, kevlar in order to hold on to them um, you know, these are all uh, kind of efforts that we have to put into place in order to locate those nests. The, the nest, finding the nest is the key to uh, controlling this particular pest. And uh, right. uh, we won't give up for some time. But we will be busy at this for a few years, for sure. Right. And so, like, when you set up these traps, if you actually catch one of these murder hornets, how do you then trace it back to its nest? No, we can't. Uh, not okay. not when it is dead, uh, floating around in orange juice. No, what 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 happens is is that we here we have a, a system where basically, as what we had in Nanaimo in 2019, when we had a cluster of sightings, we plot that on a map and get an idea. Aha, this is a kind of the general area. There must be a nest somewhere out here, and we have right. a field crew that will basically look under every bush and shrub and find out whether there is an entrance to a nest. All right, Paul. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Good luck in your search for these hornets. Appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you.
All right, welcome back to the show. We started off the show today talking about the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, of course, the two Canadians who have been arrested and charged with espionage in China uh, in obvious retaliation for Canada's detention of Meng Wanzhou, uh, the Chinese tech executive who was arrested and placed under house arrest in Vancouver at the request of the United States under an extradition warrant. The two Michaels have been detained in China now for two years, and China now is saying they are going on trial charged with being spies. Now, the first so-called trial uh, took place in China today. Michael Spavor was the first to face this. The, the trial, we're told, lasted about two hours. What kind of trial is that? No media, no Canadian consular officials, no members of the public allowed inside. Michael Kovrig, the other Michael, will go on trial in China on Monday. Now, earlier today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau repeated Canada's determination to secure the release of the two Michaels. He says it is a top priority for our country. Here's what Trudeau said a short time ago here. I want to thank our many, many international partners, friends, and allies for their solidarity and support. Going forward, we will continue to be in close contact with the families during this difficult time. To their loved ones, know that today and every day, Canadians are with you and thinking of both Michaels. Okay, let's speak to Brad West now, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, who has uh, highlighted the plight of the two Michaels for some time since they, since they were arrested in China. Brad, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. What are your thoughts today as we saw this uh, so-called trial of Michael Spavor today and another one coming up on Monday for Michael Kovrig? Well, my heart really goes out to the two Michaels and their families um, because it's a complete sham, of course, and it has been from the very beginning. Uh, the justice system, and I use that term very loosely in, in China, is no justice system at all. It acts completely at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party and, and has a nearly 100% conviction rate. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's a very uh, dark day, I think. Uh, and it is, uh, continues to be a wake-up call to Canadians that our country's approach to China over the last several decades of, you know, acquiescing of, you know, further and further integration uh, has not, in my opinion, served the interests of Canadians very well at all. Okay, the conviction rate that you mentioned, I saw one report to, uh, yesterday that said the conviction rate for trials in China is 99.7% conviction rate. Yep. So what does that tell you? And the other thing that occurred to me was a, a two-hour trial. you got to be kidding me. On espionage charges, I mean, what kind of trial is that? I, I can't imagine they would have presented any proof in two hours. No, I mean... Like, what about the know, evidence? Is there evidence? Do they have rules of evidence here? I mean, what what is this? It, it, it's nothing that it bears any resemblance to the justice system and laws in the way that we would understand them in this country and in much of the, the world. Uh, and I think that that's probably the point that needs to be understood and has not been understood by our politicians in this country for decades, which is China plays by a different set of rules. And the, you know, the naivete and thinking that by, you know, playing, uh, playing their game, you know, marching to their tune was going to result in anything 
other than what we have seen in the past decades, which is the wholesale sell-off of big parts of the Canadian uh, economy to the government of China, uh, you know, the further integration of uh, uh, business interests with the government of China. This is a very predict. In my opinion, this is a predict. We have been on a predictable path. This is the the outcome of what the decision-making of our politicians for many decades has resulted in. Okay, we just got a minute left here. As, as I watch the diplomatic maneuvering on this, um, like I had Bob Ray, Canada's UN ambassador, on the show last week, and we talked about this situation. Uh, I mean, do you, give the, do you give the Trudeau government any sympathy at all for being in some ways sort of caught in the middle? I mean, this is kind of a standoff between China and the United States, and, and perhaps what Canada is hoping is that the Americans and the Chinese work it out among themselves if they can somehow settle the Meng Wanzhou situation, and we and that's the best way we can get our people home. What are your thoughts? Well, a couple things. First, they've been completely late to the game. I mean, I appreciate now that they're they're trying to say some of the right things, I guess, and maybe you can give them some credit for that. But this didn't just happen last week or last month, Mike. This has been going on for several years now. And in right. fact, I would say, uh, although the, the the situation with the two Michaels has been over the last two years, the, this the the symptom it is a symptom of decision making right. and a direction that has been going on for several decades. Okay. So I don't give them a lot of credit for it. You know, people say, well, we can't do anything because there might be retaliation. Okay. What do you call kidnapping two Canadian citizens for no reason? All right, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Albert Samaha. He's an investigative journalist and deputy editor at BuzzFeed News. A few years ago, his mom became obsessed with the QAnon conspiracy movement, and Albert has been trying to pull his mom out of QAnon Ever since, he has written an extraordinary article about this for BuzzFeed that I highly recommend to you. Check out my Twitter feed. I just posted the link there for you. Highly recommend it, and I'm very pleased to welcome Albert Samaha to the show right now. Albert, thanks a lot for coming on. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, I, uh, congratulations on your article, which I thought was a really, really courageous article that you wrote about you and your family's experience here and uh, let's talk ab about your mom and how, how she got interested in this QAnon thing. And I noticed, Albert, in, in the article, I don't think you, have, you use your mother's name in the article. Is that right? You're not using her name? Correct, yes. Okay, so I, res I certainly respect that. L Albert, tell me, tell me about how your mother... When did you first become aware that your mother uh, was interested in this QAnon uh, conspiracy? I heard about it pretty early on in, in, in kind of mid-2018, which was just a few months after um, the, the conspiracy sort of started to bloom. And I didn't really pay much mind to it because my mom had been uh, interested in a lot of conspiracy theories over the years that I found baseless from kind of Illuminati stuff, Freemasonry stuff. Um, and, and so I sort of just chalked this up as just kind of another false thread that, that she got entangled into and, and really didn't... Oh. Um, expect it to blow up uh, mainstream in the way that it had. And, and in many ways, it was almost like the world had come to her, that sort of these conspiracy theories that she had long subscribed to for, for maybe a decade. By the time QAnon came, it was kind of like the rest of America, or at least large chunks of America, were coming around to her um, worldview and only reaffirmed the belief that she had. 
Right. QAnon, there are adherents here in Canada as well. And when we have seen, you know, pro-Donald Trump rallies, that kind of thing, these QAnon flags and shirts have been very prominent. So a lot of people have become more aware of what this QAnon thing is about. Um, one of the more prominent beliefs, I guess, in in this movement is that there's like a, a ring of child child sex traffickers that exert control ar- around the world, right? Like, is that one of the things that your mom uh, believes? Yeah, that's sort of the, the, the core aspect of that conspiracy. Um, though I think yeah. the kind of the way that she'd been roped into it was she, even, even before QAnon, she had believed in uh, kind of this secular conspiracy threat um, by groups like, you know, Freemasons and, and, and Illuminati um, that had been known as sort of the preeminent conspiracy theories uh, of, of the time. Um, so she had already kind of had this foundational belief in um, a secular conspiracy threat to kind of the Christian world order. Um, and so QAnon just added that child trafficking conspiracy layer on top of right. um, kind of a foundation belief that she'd already had. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's fairly wide, it got to be fairly widespread. And I've had, I've had people in my own lives mention this, uh, mention this to me as well, that there was some sort of unnamed, anonymous, high level officer in the government who had this secret code name Q. And that's where this all started, that whoever this Q person was, was posting these messages online and giving people clues about, what the real story was, right? Or about what's going on. Is that what your mother, is that what your mother first started reading? She started reading those Q drops as they're, as they're called. Yeah. And you know, I don't even think that her initial encounter was from the raw Q drop. I think like a lot of people, she was introduced to it from kind of this far right disinformation ecosystem that wrote about Q drops. And and there are a lot of uh, online postings and forums where they interpret Q drops and, and kind of, Almost like if, if, you know, if Q is Jesus, there's a lot of like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John who are around kind of interpreting the word of Q. And, and I think she had initially um, been introduced um, through those interpretations. And that, you know, all, obviously inevitably led her to, to the original Q drops. But I think like a lot of people, she wasn't just consuming purely the Q drops, but the interpretation that a lot of uh, um, people had of it. Right. Speaking to Albert Samaha, he's an investigative journalist with BuzzFeed News about about his mom's obsession with, uh, with QAnon. So you write in your article, Albert, that this this really started back in 2018 that you became aware that your your mom was talking about Q. I mean, is that kind of was that sort of the beginning, sort of back near the beginning of the QAnon movement? Yeah, I think the earliest drops first came in late 2017. Yeah. Um, and she first began began to get wind of it kind of early to mid-2018. And I think by the end of that year, by the start of the next year, it had kind of reached mainstream um, consciousness. Obviously, now we have a, a person in Congress um, who subscribes to QAnon, at least one of them, yeah. Um, yeah. and really doesn't show any uh, sign of slowing anytime soon. Yeah, so what kind of stuff was your mom, when you became aware your mom was following this QAnon thing, like what kind of things was, was she telling you? I think kind of the, the, the core belief stuff was like, you know, that there was a lot of um, clone theories, like a lot of um, celebrities and politicians who, who um, Q proponents um, claimed were clones from like Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, um, the, the sort of um, child sex trafficking conspiracy, uh, obviously was at the core of it and, and kind of a lot of 
theories of who might be involved and, and, and whether various um, uh, Supreme Court justices or or um, uh, members of Hollywood or, or um, high-level politicians were involved. Um, so really just a lot of, pretty much anything you've heard on the Q stuff, I've gotten yeah. a text about it. Yeah, and she became a, a big supporter of uh, Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, she was a supporter of Trump before QAnon. Um, and I almost wonder whether she and a lot of other people were uh, more um, open to, to listening to Q because uh, Q sort of reaffirmed their belief in Trump. You know, uh, Q posited that Trump was a prophetic, you know, savior figure. So for folks yeah. who already uh, believed in Trump and were looking for reasons to reaffirm their belief in, 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 in him, um, Q offered that evidence for them. Right. And as you write in your article, she wasn't just, a, you know, a, a diehard supporter of uh, Trump and an early adopter of the QAnon theory, but she, she was a real activist, too. Like, like she'd go to a lot of rallies. She would post a lot of her, a, a lot of the rallies on, on, on social media. Like, she actually went out and, and attended a lot of rallies and stuff, right? She did. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I felt ambivalent about those because I didn't yeah. want to discourage her from being, like, civically active or civically minded. Right. You know, like I know some people that just told, you know, their QAnon relatives, like, just stop listening, stop following politics, stop caring about the world. And I felt like I didn't want to tell her to, like, stop caring about the world and stop caring about issues she found important. So I was trying to I really thought it was important for me to sort of try to find some way to balance both kind of encouraging her to still be engaged with the world and interested in politics right. while still pushing back against things that I felt were, were, were false and dangerous. Yeah. So how did this impact your relationship with your mom? I mean, here you are, uh, an investigative journalist and a, and a reporter with, with a big uh, newsroom, and, and she's an a- adherent of QAnon. How did that affect your relationship? You know, one of the things I found speaking with a lot of people the past couple of weeks who have gone through similar situations is that in a way, my mom and I were, were kind of lucky because for a decade before QAnon, we had developed um, experience in navigating this sort of divergence of facts. You know, like 10 years before, you know, QAnon entered our lives, we were arguing about whether Obama was a Christian, or whether Obama hmm. was born in the U.S., you know. So these sort of false conspiracy theories propagated by the far right had already caught hold of her 10 years before QAnon. So by the time QAnon came around, we had spent a decade arguing over things that I thought were, were baseless. Um, and so it did, it, QAnon itself didn't really affect our relationship, except that it sort of intensified some of the debates that we were having, because now all of a sudden um, she has this entire community of people who are reaffirming yeah. her beliefs, um, right. whereas and you she were, maybe didn't have that before. Right, and you try, but you've tried to pull her out of this, right? Like you've tried to steer her away from this, right? I did, you know, and, and, and uh, early in those QAnon years, maybe the first couple years, I had sort of um, set pulling like pull to me pulling her out of that was my measurement for success that anything less than that I believed would like damage our relationship but over time I, I kind of had to relinquish that optimism mm-hmm. and kind of give myself more reasonable expectations and, and I eventually realized that look I'm not going to cut off my mom you know that's just not something I'm ever going to want to do and so I had to figure out a way for us to just live amicably in our right. two realities without just giving in without just saying it's okay for you to believe this, but sort of setting this tone and both of us kind of coming to this understanding that we do really disagree virulently about each other's worldviews, but, but 
that doesn't need to define us. That doesn't need to consume every conversation we have. Yeah. Okay, Albert. Last question for you. the The article you've written is extraordinary. It's a. It's a. You know, you just sort of bare your soul and tell your story about you and your mom and the article. And I know the article has gone kind of viral online. What What has been your mother's uh, reaction to the story that you wrote? So she really liked the story. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> there was no surprise in the story. You know, there's nothing in that story I haven't said to her face a million times, and we haven't discussed a million times. Um, so she knew everything coming into the story, and she was happy with the story. Her one big concern was she was worried um, that would be it would be embarrassing for all of her Patriot friends to find out to find out about my worldview, and um, <laughs> so we sort of that was kind of the one shoe that was waiting to drop. Um, but she's heard back from some of those friends, and, and a lot of them like the story too, it, which is probably the first time I've ever written a story that my mom's Patriot friends can really get behind. Um, but I was kind of heartened to hear that that, that even her friends on that side of it. Um, saw the value in the story because they were dealing with similar situations with their own kids. Wow. Congratulations on it, and thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me. It was a good time.